What's up, friends? Seamus here, and I host the podcast Chewed Gum. Every episode of Chewed Gum, we look at specific films, television, and anything else, entertainment or art. We critique it, we give it our best opinions, and some random information that you might have never known. So tune in on your favorite podcast player today, or visit dramacityproductions.com slash chewedgum and find out what I think about some of the most popular and unpopular entertainment out there. Thanks for listening. And now back to your regular scheduled programming. Um, who's actually listening to you idiots? Grum. No, 2019, <laughs> New Year, same bullshit. Same old bullshit. Not changing shit, <laughs> except for the intro and the intro. Huh. No, but actually, no. I guess we did change things. It's a sweet new intro. It is. We, we try. Try and counts. Welcome to Rock Candy, <laughs> kids. 2019, new things are happening. They're coming. They're coming hard. Yeah. I think. <laughs> Where you're... Favorite podcast for music, stories, adventures, we craziness. Better, it better be your favorite fucking podcast by now. Jesus. Yeah, I mean, like, if you're not hooked by now, if you're not hooked after these episodes... Then I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm not even <laughs> sorry. I don't know if you? I want you around. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly. Get out of here. Get, get out of here with this. Get your shit together. Get out of here. Get, just take it all with you. I don't even want it. I don't want it anymore. <laughs> Shit collection day come <laughs> to pass. I don't know. It just makes sense. No, it doesn't. But yeah, uh, if you haven't looked at the title of this episode, we talk about Queen. Finally. We're finally getting to the to the big one. This is this is right off the bat. Just fucking, fucking pedals to the metal. Just get it done and over with. I want it all. And I want it now. <laughs> and I'm giving it to you as well. Yeah. So yeah, Queen is what we're talking about. Seriously. And, and is we're going to be talking about it for a while. Yeah, so. this this is a deep dive. So buckle up, buckaroos. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> this is a deep dive into Queen. Uh I, honestly, that's kind of half the reason I decided to do it now is cuz we knew we I knew we'd have a big break. Mm-hmm. I figured let me uh really just reach deep down inside and panties of information. It's pretty much the only way you would be able to do all the research granted you pretty much know all of it already i, I but, actually know a lot like but a lot of this was me rereading and rewatching documentaries yeah. but in order to do that you kind of needed a lot of time I did. and when we're switching like weeks it's not it's still not easy we still have lives people yeah <laughs> we can't do we all this have, queen research we have full-time jobs yeah. unfortunately sadly but you know i mean it pays the bills i guess does it? Barely. <laughs> just, just enough. Just barely. Just enough. But yes, in case you haven't heard our Queen Bohemian Rhapsody music uh, or movie bonus episode, you can go back. It's there. It's still there waiting for you. If you saw the movie, curious how we thought about it. I'm not going to rehash it. I'm going to try really hard not to rehash my feelings on the movie. But also, 
It just won Golden Globes last night. It did. So. It literally just won the Golden Glo- Globes last night. Yeah, best movie. Movie drama. Uh-huh. Wait, and best movie? Best movie. Yeah. Jesus H. Yeah, that's... Guys, yeah. it was good. It wasn't that good. Yeah. It wasn't better than Black Panther or Black Klansman or basically, like... Pretty much any of the other movies that it was up nominated against. with. Yeah, I wouldn't... I'm not... You know what? Not rehashing but, it. But Rami won Best Actor. I'm, I fully support that. I fully support that. He fucking earned it. Again, though, we are not rehashing that. Yeah. He he <laughs> is that movie, yeah. I feel like. So good for him. And the kid from Jurassic Park. Joseph Mazzello is yes. a wonderful human being. <laughs> yes. I'm here <laughs> and for him. he... Yeah, he is... Not only is John Deacon severely <laughs> underrated, but Joseph Mazzello as John Deacon is... Severely underrated. Oh, I will tell you guys a lot about John Deacon. I am here for it. I'm going to tell you all a lot about all of Queen because I will say this again. I love Freddie Mercury. Fucking my god and idol to this day. I look to be him in my everyday life. Mm-hmm. However, Queen was an entire band. It's not just one guy. Yeah, This isn't no doubt people. There is more... To no doubt than Gwen Stefani. Wait, so then you are saying it's like no doubt. They treated it like no doubt. Yes. Whereas... But no doubt isn't like no doubt, I guess. I'm I so I don't even like no doubt. I don't know. I think they're just fine. But I've been thinking about this a lot doing the research. Queen would have never fucking happened if it wasn't for every single individual oh, yeah. member. Because as you're going to learn throughout the series... Everyone played a very specific role. Everybody played a very specific part. Yes, you needed Freddie, but you also needed Roger Taylor. You also needed John Deacon, and you also needed Brian May. You would not have the band Queen if it didn't have all of those four functioning parts. And you also wouldn't have had a lot of their biggest hits if you didn't have the other members. Right. It wasn't just Freddie Mercury writing and singing and writing the lyrics and everything. Yeah. It was a collaborative effort. 100 percent and even john deacon wrote some of the their biggest hits yeah so yeah no honestly look it's, beyond the mercury people guys we are going to bring you beyond the mercury <laughs> which is That's, poison anyway yeah <laughs> so yeah. there's that but also um yeah i mean this is this is going to be i hope up there with a definitive record of queen for people to look at because i will stand by the fact that i think i am one of the top five queen knowledgers of upstate new york i would agree with that because i don't know who else knows as much about queen as i do just label these episodes the encyclopedia of queen yeah that's what i'm working at yeah like life goals right there i should just be a fucking queen researcher i am fine with that just that was my job transcribe these episodes put them in a book there for you sell them on amazon like everybody else i should do that you should i'm not gonna though (laughs) i fucking hate writing it's hard it's difficult. But yes, this is a long, deep dive. This will be a few episodes. If you don't like Queen and you don't care about these, then just wait till the end of the month. We'll have something new. Well, if you don't like Queen and your friends don't like Queen, well, they're no friends of mine. Yeah. And that's and that's not men at work. Fucking. That's the safety dance by, by men without hats. Men without hats. <laughs> Yes, that's that's it. Also, we both still have the death. We are definitely on the upswing of death. I thought I was on the upswing of look, death. We couldn't have and recorded morning, for the past two weeks because it wouldn't have fucking happened. No, this I didn't have a voice last week. Yeah, this this 
Jersey death thing that I brought back with me is just not going away and it is working its way through our circle of friends and I'm tired of it. You're killing all of us. I did not think that my body could produce this much phlegm, but this is a learning curve for me, I guess. Gross. It's disgusting. (laughs) I need to share all of my disgusting bodily functions with everybody. Don't catch the Jersey death. Don't. Don't do it. Well, before we get into it, uh, shout out to our beer of the evening. Oh, yes. We have Oma Gang's Queen of the Seven Kingdoms, which works on two levels, really. Yeah. Because first of all, I mean queen. Mm-hmm. But also the way they wrote queen looks kind of like the way you would write queen. Yes. Yes, it kind of looks like the queen logo. Like it's trying to be without getting sued. <laughs> and then also. Good job, Oma Gang. Seven Kingdoms, Seven Seas Awry. Exactly. So, like, I we're like a fucking onion up in this bitch with our yep. layers. You're welcome. <laughs> and I will also let you guys know where majority of my research came from three sources. There's a book called 40 Years of Queen by Harry Doherty. He actually hung out with the band a lot. I think he was a reporter of sorts. I didn't get to look into him so much because I was too busy looking up the band. But it's a pretty interesting book. It comes with a lot of fun pullouts and pictures and things. So, is it a pop up book? <laughs> Almost. Oh, that's cute. Right? And then uh, another book, Queen Unseen, My Life with the Greatest Rock Band of the 20th Century by Peter Hintz. I'm actually listening to that on Audible. It's okay. I would suggest that book if you know a lot about Queen or if you're very interested in what it's like to be a roadie because Peter Hintz was their roadie for quite some time. Roadies have the best stories. Yeah, no, they really do. And he's got some fun ones. It's it kind of right now I'm in a spot where the, he really doesn't talk about the band. He talks more about his stuff and I don't care as much. So I'll skip. <laughs> but I mean, that's not a dig on him. He's telling no, the story. But, like, and it's great. We, you're listening to it for a, a specific purpose. Yeah. So. Yeah. I'm looking I'm listening for a certain thing. And then the final thing was Days of Our Lives. The documentary, not the soap opera. I was going to say. <laughs> and it's called Days of Our Lives. This is confusing. Story about Queen is not about Marlena if and John. If only the soap opera were about Queen. It would... Is it off the air? Oh, I never it figured might, that out. It might still be on the air I'm if it was sure about... It they should fucking revamp that shit. Right? What are you, what are you fuckers doing? <laughs> not thinking right, clearly. Clearly. But, and of course, I've also just, like, dug up articles and interviews so there's a lot of this information out there but i'm doing all the digging and presenting for you crazy kids at home you're welcome because <laughs> that's a lot buckle up yeah it's, it's this is our first like super major heavy hitter yeah. i feel like so balls out guys thank you <laughs> so i've decided to open up this story with a date to set the scene Picture it. It's February 27th, 1969. A band called Smile performed their first large gig for a charity event at Royal Albert Hall in London. The three bandmates must have been pretty elated to get such exposure. And that night surely felt like their careers were just beginning. But as the cliche goes, the future had yet to be written. And little did the guitarist and drummer realize that their careers were indeed just beginning. But they couldn't imagine the ways in which their legendary status would take shape. So let me begin as it began with Brian May. So Brian May, the distinct sound of that guitar and queen. Thank you, Brian May. And and the hair. And that hair. That hair. Still got it. He still, still has got that, that hair. hair. It's fully 
like salt and pepper now, but and he's oh, ro- it's still oh, it's, there. It's, it's getting real salty. Oh yeah, but he's still rocking it. Good for you, Brian May. He can still pull it off. Oh, God, Good for yes, him. He can. Well, Brian was born on July nineteenth, nineteen forty-seven, and grew up in Feltham, which is a suburb of West London. As a child, he was quite scholarly, but his parents heavily encouraged him to practice music as well. His father taught him to play both the piano and the ukulele. After mastering these instruments, Brian immediately took to the guitar, and around age 14 or 15, he and his father worked on building his own electric guitar. They created it from scratch, using oak for the body, and the overall project cost them about 8 pounds, and they called it the Red Special, and it's a guitar which Brian still uses on the regular today. Yup. That is a well-crafted instrument. Good yeah. for them. And Brian actually does tell the story of how his father never really got the music thing until later on in their career. And Brian's like, you helped me build a guitar. Yeah, that's kind of weird. Right? How did you know how to build a guitar, but you weren't really into music? Yeah, I was... It. His dad was funny, apparently. Is he just that fucking smart? Jesus Christ. Shut he, up. He is Stop. really fucking smart, though. Whatever. If you want to feel bad for yourself, think about Brian Seriously, May. Seriously, Brian May's dad makes me feel bad about myself. Yeah. I Brian May like... himself is like a fucking astrophysicist, astronomer, and like the world's greatest like, guitar player. I can't even tell you how many times I accidentally flipped the pen out of my hand today just trying <laughs> to fucking write a sentence. Nice. And this man just builds a guitar. All right, fine. I yeah, guess whatever. that's what you want to do. I mean, you know, you're an adult. What's that like? You're a fully functioning. He was a fully functioning adult. Like, see, school. I almost just <laughs> spilled my fucking beer. Are you, you kidding did. That me? That was delightful. Fuck. Oh, be careful. I'm done. <laughs> Calling it in. this table and going home. <laughs> well, in high school, Brian formed his first band, 1984, after the George Orwell book, because he's a massive nerd. Yeah, that makes sense. Yep. Such a nerd that he went to college for mathematics and physics and focused in astronomy in particular. I thought you were about to say he went to school for math. (laughs) Did they have math back then? (laughs) Yes. Did they? No. I don't know. I don't know. Now I really want to know. (laughs) This isn't the history of math. This is the history of (laughs) Queen. If you want the history of math, go somewhere else. (laughs) 1984 was a moderate success and managed to not only stay and they managed to not only stay together through a little bit of their time at university, but also got themselves a gig supporting Jimi Hendrix in 1967 at an event hosted by their college. Wow. Yeah. Brian was so overwhelmed watching Hendrix that it only made him want to practice harder so he could match his idol's talent. Yeah, she do. Due to the musical differences and overall studies to be taken seriously, 1984 soon disbanded and Brian graduated with his Bachelor's of Science in 1968. But he did continue some studies to like be a full fucking astrophysicist because overachiever. Yeah. But he also found himself missing the joy of performing, and so he got together with the 1984 bassist, Tim Staffel, to form the band Smile. Such a terrible name for a band. It was like, don't forget to smile. <sighs> Fuck off. Like, don't, <laughs> don't fucking tell don't me, tell to, me smile. to smile. It was 1968. They didn't know any better. <laughs> All they were missing was a drummer. So they put out an ad for a, quote, Ginger Baker, Mitch Mitchell type to join them. I'm sorry, what? Okay, Ginger Baker was the drummer for Cream and Mitch Mitchell drummed with Jimi Hendrix. Okay. Right. So there you go. Catching. Like, is this some, like, weird fucking English I had to look shit? this up. So don't <laughs> think I'm that smart. I'm not. I'm not Brian fucking May. Excuse me. <sighs> He's so smart. 
Well, they got exactly what they asked for in a man named Roger Meadows Taylor, born July 26, 1949 in West Norfolk, but raised in Truro on the Cornish coast because this kid's bougie. Roger fell in love with music at a very young age. He was inspired when watching his cousin play guitar, but at the time had to make do learning on ukulele. Because apparently they just had ukuleles for days in England. Uh, that's where all the ukuleles came from. <laughs> they all just came from England. It's ukulele farms. Well. Ukuleles having babies. I think they were because at age eight, he formed his first band called the Bubbling Over Boys. Oh my God. Which was, <laughs> which was really, hold on, which was really just Roger and a few of his friends strumming chords on ukuleles. Oh my God. That is the most adorable thing well, ever. eight-year-old, I'm the Bubbling Over Boys. We're going to play our ukuleles for you. I'm just picturing like really tiny Herman's hermits. Oh my God, that's so cute. (laughs) Hello. Hello. I'm going to play you a song now. (laughs) Boom, 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 boom. They're all shoving something completely (laughs) different. (laughs) And I can picture just Roger being like, you guys fucking, you're the worst. How'd I get involved with such a I'm fucking... going to be in a big rock band someday. And you will, son. You will. <laughs> but of course, this incorrigible scamp would want more and bought himself a guitar for eight pounds. But I'm also picturing him as like the artful Dodger fronting tiny Herman's Hermits. <laughs> I don't know why. That's, you know what? It's adorable. I, I'm fine with that. It's it's just a very Oliver Twistian kind of image. Place, sir. Do you want me to play a song? I got a ukulele. <laughs> Have you got a high penny? <laughs> no? How about a smile? <laughs> <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> oh, that's it. That's it. Anyway, fuck it. Roger managed to score himself a choral scholarship to the Truro Cathedral School and a spot in their choir, which is where he honed in on his vocal abilities. He impressed the staff with not only his range, but also his falsetto ability, which if you listen to Queen songs, that high ass note isn't Freddie. That's Roger. And it's also not, you know, manipulated Mm -mm. sounds. It's actually Roger. Yeah. Like he genuinely could sing that high. Yes. And... And did Freddie abuse that in the best of ways? Yes. Somewhere during high school, Roger boarded the guitar and decided to give them drums a try instead. It took him a few years to build his first kit because he would just gather it up bit by bit. But he had an immediate talent for it. And two years later, he formed the band The Cousin Jacks, where he played drums. He's really good at forming bands. And also, I feel like at that time, it wasn't really popular to have a big drum set. Mm. No, oh no. I mean, Rush wouldn't be for like another, what, 10 years, 15 yeah. years? Yeah, and like, if you watch like Top of the Pops and Ed Sullivan Show, The Beatles, everything like that, they didn't have big drum kits. It's like they, a bass, two snares, and a fucking... Maybe one cymbal. Yeah, cymbal. Yeah, that's like, that's pretty much it. Yeah. So it wasn't until, I would say, the 70s when people were like, oh, we can, we can make this bigger. I want more drums. I want to bang on more drums. Oh, bang on the drums all day. No, stop it with that song. Gotta. I fucking hate that song. In 1965, he joined the band Johnny Quail and the Reaction, who are well known in the community. However, <laughs> when the titular Johnny left the band, they looked to Roger to take over the vocals. And then they just became the Reaction. 
<laughs> because Johnny Quayle left, so they're just the reaction at this point. Ugh. The reaction to Johnny Quayle leaving is just being the reaction. <laughs> oh, we can't figure out a better name. It's the reaction. The reaction. We're the sure. reaction. This is also where he learned to sing and play drums at the same time. Because he was a little hesitant at first. He's like, well, I guess I'll do it. I am just enthralled by people that can do that. Fucking him and Phil Collins, Don Henley. How the fuck do you sing and drum at the same time? I can't even drum. Period. I can't even walk and talk at the same time. I've seen it. It's a mess. I can't sing and clap at the same time. I've tried (laughs) so hard. I can't do it. I can barely even keep a beat when I'm just trying to keep a beat so more power to you i could never be a full-fledged musician it just won't work for me try and counts let's get some ukuleles i had one i gave it to our friend emily because i'm like i'm never gonna play this well now we (laughs) never get to be the bubbling over boys cover band (laughs) god that i could do i can play a ukulele like an eight-year-old oh my god Oh, dreams. We're going to dream big, guys. Yeah. Well, despite his long, beautiful, luscious locks that identified him as a rebel in the community, Roger was pretty reasonable and understood that this band thing might not work out, so he went on to study dentistry at the London Hospital Medical School. (laughs) He's like, I'm going to be a hot dentist. Yeah. And he would have been a hot dentist. I just... Okay, yeah, keep yeah, going. Yeah. I'm, gonna, I'm like, I'm going to make an English joke about their bad teeth. And it, no, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not. I'm above I'm this. <laughs> One day his flatmate told him of a notice that he saw that a band was looking for a drummer. And Roger called the number and scheduled an audition with Brian May and Tim Staffel. He didn't have his drum kit in London, so he actually auditioned on a set of bongos. This was apparently enough to oh. impress the guys immediately, and they right off the I bat mean, offered him a spot. If you can play the bongos that good, right? More and not look like a you. fucking douchebag, and not look like a Matthew McConaughey dipshit, then go for it. You did it. You, you totally it. pulled it off, man. You nailed it, sir, and you deserve a spot in Queen. Roger was the stereotypical broke college kid, but he was nothing if not thrifty as well. He had a good sense of fashion and an eye for art, so he decided to open up a stall in the Kensington Market with Tim's friend, who was also a unique and ambitious guy that became close friends with the band Smile right off the bat. And his name was Freddie Bolsara. Oh. Born Farouk Bolsara on September 5th, 1946, in the British Protectorate of Zanzibar. As many know, he was born with four supernumerary incisors, which he attributed to his impressive vocal range, and he refused to ever have anything done with them. Good. Because that's he was afraid that if anybody touched the teeth that he wouldn't have the range he had. That's understandable, but also it gave him a really distinct look. Mm. Everybody knows Freddie for his massive overbite. Oh, yeah. So why would you change that? Yeah, if you can work an overbite, don't get rid of it. And why would you bother when you have a talent like his? Yeah. You know, the talent overshadows any imperfections you might have. And then once he gets that mustache, I'm not looking at anything else. That mustache was the best choice he ever made. Best choice. By the age of eight, his parents decided to send him away to boarding school in India. It was there that he began to go by the name Freddie, because in his mind, no one famous was named Farouk. Um, little geography lesson. Oh. Um, I believe Zanzibar is technically part of Africa. Mm-hmm. However, it is made up mostly of people of Indian descent. So Freddie was of Indian descent. Right. Yeah, there's his I did not go into his entire family tree, but yeah, there's 
they definitely traveled from other places yeah. somewhere in India. So I it can't makes, remember where. It makes sense that they would send him to India. Yeah. For and boarding the schooling was just a little bit better there. So they yeah. figure like, we're just going to toss you over there. Well, he fell in love with artists like Elvis, of course, and that motivated him to take part in both choir and piano lessons. By the age of 12, he formed his first band, The Hectics. Decidedly a better better name for a band. Than the Bubba Nova Boys. Or the reaction. Well, I mean, <laughs> but when Johnny Quail leaves, what what happens to the reaction? But in 1964, the Bolsara household had to flee Zanzibar, as it was that the year that the revolution began, and they feared for their own safety. Oh, wait, so he started his own band in Zanzibar? Oh, no, this was in India at school. Oh, in India. Okay. Yep, yep, yep. Okay. But, I mean, they were like, we got to get the fuck out of Zanzibar, so... Yeah. Well, no, actually, at this point, Freddie was old enough to attend university, so he wasn't even at school anymore. Oh. So, he ended up going to Isleworth Polytechnic and then Ealing College of Art. He had a real talent for just, like, visual art, and he studied graphic illustration. Mm. It was in school where he befriended Tim Staffel and, by proxy, his bandmates, Brian and Roger. And they all got on immediately. Uh, Freddie and Roger specifically, because they were both so taken with just, like, the psychedelic styles of the time and just, like, how art was. They, they were, were real artsy. They were dandies. They were 100% dandies. 100%. They were the dandiest of dandies. Till the day Freddie died, he was a fucking dandy. And that's just, that's all right with me. Dandies are just wonderful. all right with me. <laughs> That's when they decided together that they would run the mar- the stall in Kensington Market. Oh, like, they sense. would sell clothes. Freddie would sell some of his art. Because his art was really, really good. Mm-hmm. Honestly, if Freddie didn't become the big musician he did, he might have still become a musician. But he easily could have still done something with his art. Yeah. N- no questions asked. He's very talented. He was very talented in so many aspects. Again... Like Brian May, we're like, oh, you're just fucking smart, and like, Bri- oh, you now can just Freddie, do everything, like, oh, can't you? Can just you? Do everything. Oh, why? tell me how you can do everything, but really, I love you for yeah, it. Yeah, I was like, wait, why is my love letter turning into like bitter <laughs> hatred? Like, I want to be able to do everything, and Roger Taylor is so pretty; it can sing and play drums at the same and time. His hair is beautiful. And he wears <sighs> those fucking knit caps, and he looks good in them. God, he does though. I mm. want a knit cap and look good in it. I knit his cap. <laughs> Anyway, it was around this time that Freddie walked into a posh clothing store called Biba and met a store clerk named Mary Austin. He immediately became smitten with her. And he wasn't the only one because Brian had actually dated Mary previously. But it never got serious, so they just stayed friends. Yeah. I've been in that that situation before. Yeah, like he had met her at a concert before Freddie had met her and he just was like, oh, she's so pretty. I mean, yeah. he's just like, I got the courage to talk to her, asked her out. We went a couple dates, but it was never anything more than a peck on the cheek and just good conversation. Yeah. So he's like, it just never worked. So when Freddie wanted to go, I was like, yeah, go for it. She's hot. Hit it. <laughs> Get it, boy. I'm pretty sure that's exactly uh, that's what Brian exactly May said. That's exactly what Brian May said. Yeah. Get your dick wet. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's exactly how that went down. Yeah. Well, despite Freddie's shy nature, because... As most people know, too. Yeah, on stage, Freddie was like, boom, out there. But in person, Freddie was very introverted and pretty, like, you know, he wouldn't always just, like, want to be the center of attention. Sometimes he really needed to sit back. A lot of lead singers are like yeah. that. You got all that energy, but you're only using it on stage. Yeah, like, you can, you have to turn it off. You, yeah. You have to be able to turn it on when it needs to be on 
turn it off when you need to just chill out. Yep. And arguably, this is before he even really had that energy that he had because he would walk into the store every few days and try to talk to her. Aww. Sometimes he couldn't. Sometimes he had to bring Roger with him, so he like felt a little bit more confident. That's so cute. Which I don't know why you would bring your hottest friend with you <laughs> to talk to a girl, but like it's it's fine, it's cute. Um, but you know, after several months of doing this, and Mary was like, I knew what he was doing the whole time, but it was cute. I didn't stop him. He finally asked her out on a date, but from there it quickly escalated to them moving in together five months later. That's quick. Yeah, it escalated quite quickly. (laughs) That escalated quickly. And you all might be like, well, why are you talking about this woman he dated? Well, this will will play a fucking role. Don't you worry. A big one. This will play a big fucking role. Yeah. (laughs) At the time, Freddie was singing in his own band, Ibex. Ibex? Ibex? I'm not really sure how they pronounced it. Is that? Ibex. Oh, okay. I don't know. Ibex sounds right. Sure. They weren't having much luck, so they moved to Liverpool, where most of the band was originally from. But Freddie missed that London life and was not having any of this fucking Liverpool yeah, shit, so he left. I would say at that time, at least, Liverpool was drastically different than London was. You don't want to live in Liverpool. Yeah, I don't think I'm anybody... I'm a Beatle. I don't think anybody really wanted to live in Liverpool We got lived in Liverpool. Fucking, like, was Black Sabbath is from Liverpool, aren't they? Black Sabbath's from Liverpool. <laughs> or like somewhere up there. Like they didn't want to be there. Nobody wanted to be there. That's fair. That's fair. Sorry, Liverpool. <laughs> Sorry. I'm sure you're lovely now, but. Eh. So he left Ibex and tried a couple other bands from there. Uh, here's some great names. Sour Milk Sea and oh, another. Oh, right. Ugh. Right. And another band just called Wreckage. Yeah. But nothing seemed a good fit for Freddie. He really admired his friends and smile and thought that their music was much more on his level. But at this point, they didn't have any need for a singer. So Freddie just watched from the wings and bided his time. He should have done a solo project called Fit for Freddie. Because like Fit for a Queen? Because you just said Fit for Freddie. Oh, yeah, Fit for Freddie. Oh, wouldn't that be cute? Oh, cover band. Yeah, Fit for Freddie. Just cover his two solo albums, which we'll get to eventually. (laughs) Well, kids, life can be funny sometimes. Have a really good way of working out. Give you exactly what you need when you need it. And sometimes some real bullshit can actually be a true blessing and be the thing you needed to shoot you right where you need to be. In 1970, former Bee Gees drummer Colin Peterson started a band with Jonathan Kelly, which they decided to call Humpy Bong. That it that takes the prize. That takes the prize. Humpy Bong. You humpy take Humpy Bong, Bong for the gold. Humpy Bong. Golden Globe for worst fucking <laughs> band name ever. I think that would just be a Razzie. Either way, either way. Well, they put out an ad for a search for musicians and Tim decided to give it a shot because while Smile was doing pretty decent, I think that he just felt they were stagnant at the same time. So, so, so you clearly Smile to go to Humpy, Humpy Bong. Bong. Well, I imagine Bee Gees drummer must have been tantalizing. I guess. Like, yeah, Bee Gees drummer. Can't go wrong. Humpy Bong. Maybe I can, though. Humpy Bong. You can go wrong. <laughs> We write a song called Happy Bong, You Could Go Wrong. That's their autobiography. It's uh, very short. It's very short. Because he did get offered this right on the spot to join their band. So he left Smile and Brian and Roger to figure out what the hell they're going to do without a bassist or a singer. And then Fit for Freddy. 
Fit for Freddy comes in. He knew this was his fucking time. He was here <laughs> for it. When he heard about Tim leaving, he immediately went to Brian and Roger and just encouraged them to keep going and have him be the singer because that's what he wants to do anyway. And this worked. And from there, the band, this local band would just eventually become one of the world's biggest and most amazing musical phenomenons. Mm-hmm. But I'm sure at the time they're probably like, yeah, I guess Freddie can be our singer. Like, fast forward five years from there. Oh, this was a good choice. This was a good idea. This was a good idea. Hey, Tim, how's Pumpy Bong going? <laughs> oh, you, they don't exist anymore, huh? Cue the Kermit sipping tea. But that's none of my business. But that's not my business. <laughs> Except there was a tiny issue of the band name. Freddie didn't care for Smile. He felt they needed something much grander. I'm with Freddie Yeah, on I'm this. with Fred. I'm, I'm quite, 100% with Freddie on this. Quite definitely with Freddie on this. There were a bunch of suggestions back and forth. Actually, I think there were some Lord of the Rings based and maybe even a Star Wars based name. Oh my god! Because they're all fucking nerds. But Freddy wanted to go with Queen. He knew it. This is what was going to work. And Brian and Roger kind of had their misgivings about it, but they just went with it because they figured, all right, Freddy knows what's up. Let's do this. Oh, and I guess there is the uh, little important fact of finding a bassist. That might also that helps help you. That helps when you're in a band. They were already performing gigs, but had a bit of a revolving door of bassists. And it wasn't until they ran into a friend at a disco one night, and she introduced them to her friend, John Deacon, a bassist who was looking for a band to play in. So born on August 15th, 1951 in Leicester, John Deacon developed two lifelong hobbies early on, electronics and music. At the age of seven, his parents bought him his first guitar. However, he didn't really take to it right away because he just felt it was really difficult to hone in those skills. Mm -hmm. So instead, he was really going towards electronics because that was second nature to him. And at one point, he built his own tape recorder so he could record songs off the radio. Aww. I used to do that, too. Because, again, why just be good at music or just electronics? Why not be good at everything? Yeah. Overachiever. Fucking queen. Just a fucking band of overachievers. They really are. God. Whatever. I'm, I'm not gonna lie. I'm bitter. I'm jealous. Still, I want to be your friend. I still want to be your friend, though. Be our friend. <laughs> when he entered high school, he made another attempt at the guitar when his friends wanted to start a band. He also used this as a chance to, once again, show off his science nerd skills by adapting his tape recorder to be an amp that the band could use while we're performing. Ugh. <sighs> Right? Jesus Christ. Fuck, he's a fucking whiz. He's a fucking little... If they really wanted to, all of them could just, like, build a rocket and fly into space. I want to be on that rocket. Right? And they'd have a dentist. <laughs> <laughs> Your dental care is covered. <laughs> you were going to get on this spaceship? Well, got any cavities you need filled? Because I, I can help you. Because I can help you. And then they can also play the best music you've ever heard in your fucking life. <laughs> Jesus. Concert in space. Fuck Live Aid. That would have been their greatest concert ever. If only they altered the ending. If only. (laughs) My God. Unfortunately, after John's dad passed away in 1962, he was pretty obviously devastated from it. So he found true comfort in music and started his own band called The Opposition. This is just band names for days. Hectic's Reaction Opposition. A lot of gerunds. Is that what a gerund is? When it's the the something? Oh, I have no idea. I think that's a gerund. Anyway. Well, they constantly consisted mostly of pop and Motown covers. And they were quite popular in the Leicester area and they gigged around often. 
Uh, when their bassist left the band, John took this as the opportunity for him to learn bass. So he did. And they also changed the band's name. First, they changed it to The New Opposition. I mean, that's slightly better. But at the same time, why can't they come up with something more creative than what their last band name was? I don't know. <laughs> but finally, they settled on Art. Oh, my fucking God. Capital A, Art. <laughs> <laughs> want to do something with all these band names. <laughs> I just want to call him Fart. I'm just going to call him Fart. <laughs> That'd be a great cover John band, De- too. <laughs> John Deacon presents Fart. <laughs> well, the band split when John left for Chelsea College to, of course, study electronics. And while studying, he wasn't playing, but he did go to plenty of shows. And one of them was a brand new band called Queen. Aww. John recalled enjoying the show, but not being overall impressed by them. Aww. Right? I'm like, oh. <laughs> but that didn't stop him from auditioning for the band when they met at the disco that I had mentioned previously. Mm-hmm. They mentioned that they had an open spot for a bassist, so he showed up with his bass and an amp that he built himself, of course, that would eventually be known as the Deaky Amp. Because apparently it was such an impressive thing that, and it was John's amp, so they were just like, oh, it's the Deaky amp. That's really cute. That's really cute. (laughs) The band was not only impressed by his skill, but liked him a lot. And this is where it's really important to understand why Queen worked. He was different than the other three. He's quiet and reserved, not bold and presuming. They knew that he was going to bring a balance that would work well for the group. And with that, the last piece of the puzzle took its place. Yes. The gang was all here, ready to go. So they went about an intense period of rehearsing together. Roger set up a five-week stay for them in a cottage back in Truro, where they worked day and night to create a sound that would become synonymous with the name Queen. They were anxious to record a demo to send out to record companies, and they would luck out when a new studio, Delane Leah, opened in London and was looking for bands to test out their new equipment in exchange for free studio time. Ooh, Mm -hmm. that is something you definitely take up. Oh, they jumped right on it. No questions asked. The resulting demo featured five songs, Liar, Keep Yourself Alive, Jesus, Great, Great King Rat, and The Night Comes Down. And all of these will end up on their debut album. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately... There weren't any record companies chomping at the bit to sign Queen. Because, again, they're fucking nerds. Like, some of these songs, man, like Great King Rat. Well, what year was this? 70? 70. Um, the likes of Queen, like bands like Queen at that right. point, were not here yet. They weren't. They were a little before their time. I mean, you had some kind of, like, jam bands around you had a lot of that english blues you had a lot of english blues and you still well, you had... did have zeppelin yeah zeppelin was here but they they were they were a bit more like proggier than zeppelin yeah I feel like yeah they were they were a bit more progressive rock a bit more experimental conceptual? and yeah and a bit more conceptual than than i think I mean, Led Zeppelin was pretty fucking nerdy. Right. Like, half their songs were about Lord of the Rings. Yeah. But, like, I feel like Queen was like, hey, let's just throw this, like, super long song on here and see what happens. Or, you know, let's experiment with this electronic shit for a little bit and see what happens. Led Zeppelin wasn't really doing that. Led Zeppelin's like, ladies, my shirt's unbuttoned and I have beautiful hair. (laughs) These are accurate things. 
they were they were more concerned with how low their low riders can go without being thrown in jail. Right. You know. But yeah. I mean they were talented. I mean that's not to take away, of course they're talented musicians. But yes. yeah, like they also I think they understood they were pretty boys too. Whereas like Roger was the pretty boy and like Freddie was very much into the theatrics. Yeah. But, but it was more They weren't a pretty boy band. They weren't, they they were thinking of things that still related to the band. They weren't really like, ooh, let me show my dick in people's faces, you know? <laughs> no. There was no dicks in faces at no, Queen yeah. concerts. Yeah, there were, there were no dicks Which in faces. Which, I would have probably enjoyed that. Not gonna lie. I don't want your dick in my face. <laughs> but I would look at it. I mean, you know, from afar. <laughs> Unbeknownst to the band, while recording at D-Lane Leah's studio, they caught the eye of producer John Anthony. He was visiting from another fairly prestigious studio, Trident. He brought them to the attention of managers Norman and Barry Sheffield. Mm -hmm. And after seeing for themselves what all the hype was about, they offered Queen a management deal under the Trident subsidiary Neptune Productions. This allowed the Sheffields to manage the band and gave Queen access to Trident Studios. But... They would only be allowed to do this at night, not during the day when paying clients like Elton John and David Bowie were using it. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess that makes sense. Like, they're like, we're going to sign you, but you have to come in, like, after we're basically closed I mean, for the day. Yeah. Um, and they're are they kids. doing it for free? Yeah. Well, they're, you're getting it for free. It's I mean, fine. it's all part of the management deal. Right. I mean, whatever. It's free. Yeah. You take what you can they, get. Ex- that's what they thought. They figure we'll take this. Sometimes Queen would find themselves waiting around the studio before they could start recording. One day, a producer named Robin Cable asked Freddie to lay down some vocals for two tracks he was working on. One was I Can Hear Music and the other was Going Back. Both were covers. And Brian and Roger were also enlisted to record. And the result was a single released under the name Larry Lurics. So if you ever find the record by Larry Lurics, that's actually just Queen. Huh. Yeah. That's funny. Right? It's interesting. Overall, it took Queen around four months to record their first full-length album. Many disagreements were had between the band and the producers, who wanted the guys to re-record their demo songs when the band was already perfectly happy with them. Because of this, Queen didn't like any of the mixes the producers would come up with. It was important to note that the reason this band has such a distinct sound that set them apart from anyone else it's not any fucking accident they know how they want to sound and they refuse to settle for anything less than ideal so they could be a nightmare to work with in the studio but the result was always fucking worth it so they did eventually get to the point where people were like look they know what they want yeah you would think that eventually people would be like oh well just let them do what they want to do but also maybe that conflict makes them work harder yeah i mean maybe they kind of needed it yeah 100 percent yeah They only found satisfaction when they brought in engineer Mike Stone to help. And for the next five Queen albums, they would continue to bring him on board. So he also helped to find a lot of their sound as well. And in 1973, Queen officially signed with Trident Records. Not a recording deal, but a production deal. This meant they had management, recording, and publishing rights to the band. And one could wonder why the hell the guys thought this was a good idea. But on the other hand, a small band such as theirs would have never been able to be given the freedom that they were given in the studio. But under this contract, they had a lot of it. 
So at the time, this all seemed like a really perfect agreement, and it would be one that would inevitably bite them in the ass. Of course. Because basically what was happening was they'd record, Trident owned the record, and would give the record to, like, recording record companies. So they didn't own any part of their It's like they did, but they didn't. It was was very fucking... Like, their names were on it. Yeah. But they didn't really... But Trident technically owned everything under the contract. Right. So, like, it wasn't a record deal. It was almost like a deal with some guy to be like, I'll get your shit out there. Yeah, but it's also a pretty common deal Mm -hmm. at that point in time because, you know, rock and roll was still exploding and everybody was still, like, super into it and really fucking wanted it. There was a huge demand for it. Right. And record companies and management companies were constantly scouring for any band to sign that would make them some money. Right. That's how all of these record companies got so fucking huge was because they were giving garbage contracts to amazing mm-hmm. super pop or well, amazing artists that eventually became super popular. Right. Granted, they did their job. They got them to be massive and hugely popular, but Usually it was at the cost of the band. Yeah, it's one of those things where if the band works out, they're going to go through, and as you will see soon in the story, they will go through some shit. Yeah. But I'll get to that. It's, it's a us- it's a pretty common story. Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. I think even today it's still in different ways. Well, now that they're SoundCloud rappers, who needs a record contract? Woof. <laughs> In the meantime, 1973 also saw the release of Queen's debut album in July. Despite finishing it in the previous fall, it took months for Trident to find a record company to release it. But again, there just wasn't a huge clamoring for Queen. So they had to take it upon themselves to release it under a licensing deal with EMI Records. Hmm. Well, the people didn't even realize that Queen was exactly what they wanted. It was well-received by critics and is seen as a refreshing mix of heavy metal and prog rock. Which it, would, it is. Which it is. It would immediately peak at number 24 on the UK charts and number 83 in the US Billboard 200. In the debut album, you can really see the potential that Queen had. And they were even impressing each other with their unique contributions. Was their debut album just titled Queen? Just Queen. Okay. It was just Queen. Okay. Doing All Right was actually a smile song and one of the few tracks that features Brian May on piano. It wasn't until they worked on My Fairy King that Freddie was able to show off his talent at tickling the ivories. Ooh. And from that point on, he handled pretty much all the piano parts. Mm-hmm. They were like, oh, this kid's got it. We're good. My Fairy King didn't just put Freddie in the permanent spot of pianist, but many say it's also where he got his name. The line, Mother Mercury, look what they've done to me, was apparently about his own mother. And before the release of the album, Freddie knew Balsara just it wasn't going to cut it. It's not going to work for a rock legend. Right. So he legally changed his name to Freddie Mercury. Hmm. And many also say, too, you know, Mercury uh, was a messenger to the gods. So, of course, Freddie would be Freddie Mercury messenger to the gods. Yeah. The imagery of Mercury as a god figure. Yeah. Um, I mean. Kind of fits with him. Totally fits with him. Yeah. Good job, Freddie. Good pick out a good name. On point course expect no less (laughs) they also tried to make john sound cooler by printing his name on the album as deacon john (laughs) yep that that didn't do anything anything. yeah um it didn't stick and even john realized like no my name's john deacon fucking just call me john deacon did they have a discussion about this like i think they did i think they sat down a meeting 
You're not cool oh enough. My God. We need to change your name. You change your How name. about we just switch? Switch You're your Deacon last name. John. You're Deacon and there, John. And there are some of the earlier cuts who's like, Deacon John on bass. And he's like, my name's just John Deacon. No, my he name, didn't say that. My name's John. My name's just John Deacon. My name's John. I mean, they'll eventually call me Deaky, but that's about it. Just stop calling me just, Deacon John. That's not my name. I'm just going to play bass. I'm just going to go play bass now. <laughs> and this is when Queen first proudly stamped, and nobody played synthesizer uh, in the credits. Yeah. They love to boast that they did everything without electronic assistance. If anything sounds synthetically generated, that's actually from hours of layering guitar parts and harmonies in the studio. They didn't just do that on Bohemian Rhapsody. They did that on most of their songs, guys. They were good at it. And I think it was also at the point where they're like, well, fuck, we're so good at it. Why would we use a fucking synthesizer? That's what I imagine anyway. We are the synthesizer. Yes. That's also a good band name, The Synthesizer. We are The Synthesizer. No, just The Synthesizer. We gotta keep it up. With these <laughs> the, with, with the one word. Yes. Okay. The final track, Seven Seas of Rye, was a quick instrumental to close out the album. At the time, Freddie only had it half finished. It wasn't until their 1974 performance of Top at the Pops that a fully realized version would be released. Of course, after the release of their album, Queen performed many live gigs to promote their work. One crucial show was for the BBC in concert show at the Golden Green Hippodrome, which started to garner them a bit more attention. What is a hippodrome? I imagine it's just like a giant hippo that people walk into and listen to music. (laughs) Hippodrome. It's just a big old hippo and everybody just crawls under it. They walk into it and like, oh, I'm under the hippo for the music. And the hippo's the like, hippo. I'm actually a very angry animal and you shouldn't stand under me. I'm pretty violent. I could eat all of you. They don't call it hungry, hungry hippos <laughs> for nothing. Yeah, the hippodrome is just where they have real hippos fighting in a hungry, hungry hippo scenario. <laughs> That's the hippodrome. I'd go to it. Yeah. I oh, would go to I it. don't think I would. I'd feel bad. Yeah, if they were forcing them to fight. Like if it's real hippos. I guess if it was like. If it was just plastic hippos, if it was just hippos chilling out in a pond, I'd be like, "Yo, oh, I'd go." Because hippos are vicious. There'd be a lot of carnage. They're cute, but Oof. no, from a distance. From a distance. Oof. From there, they were offered the opportunity of a lifetime to open for one of the hottest bands on tour at the time, Mott the Hoople. All right, some of you might be like, "Who the fuck is Mott the Hoople?" You should know who Mott the Hoople is. I feel like our people listening are like, "Who the fuck is Mott the Hoople?" Yeah, but they were. They were pretty... They were really big. They were way bigger than Queen at the time. Yeah. They were a very influential classic rock band. Yeah. And you should look them up. Go look them up if you don't know who Mott the Hoople is. Well, it was a perfect marriage for these two acts as their sounds complemented each other perfectly. I can see that. Yeah. No, 100%. I I imagine a show with the two of them would be rad. Yeah. Like, I'd be there for it. But before the tour was to start up in November, Queen had some pressing business to attend to. The creation of their ambitious sophomore album, Queen 2. Yes, it's called Queen 2. The first album was called Queen. Well, that was the like, second one. This is Queen 2. I mean, that was the thing that they did. That was just the thing the bands did. That's just how they that, rolled, Like, man. Led Zeppelin did that all the way up to, like, four. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Huh. So, it's, it's not just a Queen thing. Everybody was that. doing that. 
Well, it had been nearly a year since they had finished their debut, so in August 1973, they went back into Trident Studios with a slew of new ideas. Queen 2, the fucking banger of an album, first of all. It is wonderful. I know I always say A Night at the Opera is my favorite Queen, but, but Queen like Queen 2, two is mm, very close second. Yeah. Very close second. It represents the contrasting ideas and styles of Freddie Mercury and Brian May. It's almost a concept album in that there's a white side and a black side. Mm -hmm. The white side is all Brian May's calm and focused energy, but the black side showcases the more driving and magical Freddie and all of his songs. However, the two sides are bridged together with Roger's, Roger Taylor's The Loser in the End at the end of side white. Mm -hmm. So it's actually really fucking smart the way they did it. This yeah. is a fascinating album to look into. The most iconic thing about this album is the cover, a photo of the band against a black background, only their faces lit up enough to be visible. It was based on a photo of Marlene Dietrich in the movie Shanghai Express. And if you look up this fo the, the photo of this, you're like, oh yeah, no, that makes sense. This all makes sense. Mm -hmm. Photographer Mike Rock, who had worked with Bowie on his album art, worked closely with the band to get the photos that would represent the exact feel of the band for this album. He also did photos for the white side, and it was pictures of the band all in white against a white background. Mm -hmm. Now, Brian, Roger, and John all preferred the white photo for the cover because they were afraid people would deem the black photo kind of pretentious. And they didn't want to ruffle any feathers. But both Freddie and Mike refused to bend on this, and so the somber, funeral-esque poses stayed on the front when the white side was on the inside. The black one is so much more dramatic. It is. But I think at the time they were afraid that people would see that and be like, oh, who the fuck is thank you all? Yeah. Or something. But I don't also, know. also, I guess, you know, it's all black and ominous. Yeah. But they wanted something that was going to get people's attention. And that right. did. And I mean, as many of you probably know, this image would also start off the promotional video for Bohemian Rhapsody. Mm -hmm. But that's going to come later. I'm going to talk about that now. And again, it would be sometime before this album was released their debut album had just come out. It wasn't even out at the U.S. in this point. So the world just hadn't seen Queen 2 until March 1974. Mm -hmm. But at least they had plenty to keep themselves busy because they had the U.K. tour with Mott, and that was going on from November through December and helped them to garner a much larger following. As the tour progressed, it turned into more of a double header as Queen wasn't the normal support band. They were just as theatric and just as out there, and people started to just immediately catch eyes with them and say, wow, they're putting on a fucking show. They're just the support act. They're kind of the, they're the kind of support act that can easily show up the main yeah, act. They will show you up. They will which, steal your girl. Which makes the uh, main act kind of resentful sometimes. Mm. I mean, the fans were there to see both of them. At, by the end of it and they do say like there was a bit of a rivalry but it was also in good fun because it kept both bands trying harder yeah you know the harder queen tried then the harder mott the hoople's yeah. gonna try but and then the harder they try the queen's like yeah. oh we'll fucking do this then but there were there's a lot of um instances where like really major bands we know now mm. would be on tour supporting a big name mm -hmm. when their first album debuts and people start noticing the album and all of a sudden the album skyrockets and yep. they're hugely popular and then everybody goes to the show to see the opening act. It happened to Van Halen. Oh, that's right. I can't remember who they were on tour with. Oh, Journey. Journey. They were on tour with Journey. Wait, wasn't it opposite? 
I thought Journey was on tour with Van Halen. No, 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 no. Van Halen was opening for Journey. Oh, okay. And because Journey was already established mm-hmm. and had a bunch of hits under their oh, belt. Oh, okay. And yeah, uh, Van Halen's... I can't I can't remember if it was their debut album or if it was 1984 came out and people lost their shit over it. And all of a sudden, everybody was coming to see Van Halen and everyone was like, I don't want to see Journey now. Oh, <laughs> Journey. Like, it's all right. You're trying. They, you know, everybody's, you know, everybody's doing just fine now. And Journey's still around. Yep. And I mean, so is Van Halen. Most, mostly. Mostly. Yeah. Still a mess, but it's still around. <laughs> But the thing that really got Queen the attention they needed and craved came from a total stroke of luck. When the BBC's Top of the Pops was unable to secure David Bowie for a performance, they decided to take a chance on this up-and-coming band. There they performed Seven Seas of Rye, and that song became their first chart-hitting single, peaking at number 10. I love how Queen and David Bowie keep, like... Oh. Kind of like coming, converging and then slightly missing each other yep. all the time. The whole story is a lot Everything. of like, a lot of like, literally like they're grazing dicks, like, <laughs> yeah. just like a they're little, just like, like a little docking just, and then they're like, bye. Just grazing tips. Just yeah. like showing each they, other it literally their is and just then the saying tip. bye. Literally, it's just the tip a lot of times. See you in the 1980s. <sighs> and then that was it. Yeah. <laughs> get sad anyway (laughs) so what does every band really want though you know it i know it the kids at home know it they want that sweet sweet american tour smooth like honey i thought you were gonna say pussy well i well queen some of them (laughs) queen had finally hit it in the bag touring with mott because then Mott was going to go to the U.S. And they were like, well, come on, Queen. And they're like, all right. Come on, boys. I'm like, okay. okay. <laughs> Can I bring my ukulele? <laughs> they're like, no. No, leave it Stop it. No more ukuleles. Aww. They began 1974 with great success and began to make a dent in the U.S. market. Unfortunately, this was short-lived when in May, Brian had woken up in Boston feeling pretty ill with a yellow complexion. Oh, that's not good. That's not good. That's not. That's never good. He had been feeling ill for a while, but finally one day he woke up and it was just like, oh no, this isn't happening. This is the thing. It was discovered <laughs> that he contracted hepatitis from a dirty needle that was used when he was getting vaccinations for all of his touring. What? Right? What? No, the 70s were dirty. <laughs> Oh, that's gross. Right? And, ter- and terrifying. Terrifying. And weirdly ironic in a strange way. I know, because way. you're getting all your vaccinations, but through your vaccinations, you got to fucking... Ha- but it was super serious. Some people were like, is he going to fucking make it? And it was bad. They Wait, which, me- which hypo- hepatitis did he get? You know, I'm going to tell you right now. Documentaries, books, websites. I have not been able to find exactly what fucking hepatitis he got. Huh. I have no idea. I can't even venture a guess. Um, Interesting. They talk about it, but they also are very... Something I've discovered with Queen, something you'll discover throughout these series, is um, Queen is just like, they'll give you a little, but they're not going to give you the whole nut. But like... Why is this the hill you're gonna die on? <laughs> like, I don't know, but they—they're just—they're just overall very private like, guys. It doesn't 
matter which hepatitis it is. Like I don't know. He just, just they, I have no one. idea. I have no idea. Which I just one. really want to know which one he got. Oh well, now you'll never know. I mean, it's useless information to me, but I just <laughs> want to know. This isn't going to do anything for me. No one is ever going to ask me this in an interview or on a test. Yeah, this is not like a trivia question at all. But like, but I if it was, know. now I wish it was. Which hepatitis did Brian they contract? I don't know. From a dirty needle when he's getting vaccinated. Also, what fucking hospital did he go to to get a vaccination? That used dirty fucking needles? They used needles? a dirty needle. But I mean, like, I don't know. Was it like that in the 70s? I hope not. It might have been, though. I would think that by the 1970s, hospitals at least would know you probably shouldn't use the same needle on multiple people. I'm just going to I'm just going to I'm going to lay this out for you. It's 2019 and people still won't vaccinate their kids cuz autism. I feel that, like but I feel like that you know was I'm right. No, you we're, are completely right. We're not smart as no, a people. <laughs> but I feel like that was a relatively recent thing that has been that took absolutely debunked. Sir, that has been absolutely 100% debunked and is if I could believe a I'm not, not going to get into it. I could believe that a nurse is lazy. Yeah. And just just, just like wiped off a needle and or just run, like lines people up and just pokes them with a needle. Oh my god. There you go. Done. 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 Well, that was my day. That was real quick. Oh my and god. And you're done. And you're done. Great. You're not getting measles. Here's some hepatitis. Which is way worse. BT dubs. Especially at that point, because they did not have a cure for hepatitis no. back then. So. Well, I immediately fly Brian back to London to get better. And he's in isolation because fucking hepatitis. But like, does he get... I guess he couldn't get rid of it. He could just get better. He does say that throughout his life, he does suffer from domino effect from having hepatitis. Like, residual like he'll have, symptoms. He'll have residual complications. Yeah. That I'm sure are brought on by the fact that he had fucking hepatitis. Because, yeah. I mean, like, at least if it's hepatitis C, you can get cured of that now. Oh, really? Yeah, they have a thing. Huh. It's like a intensive five-week medication program. Interesting. And after the five weeks, you should be cured of hepatitis C. This isn't a meth podcast, but it might be a hepatitis yeah. podcast. I mean, it's... Very recent. It, <laughs> it has like, to they, be. They just rolled it out. Like, okay. I know somebody that was like a guinea pig for oh. it, and it worked. He has. He doesn't have hepatitis C anymore. Oh, that's so, good. So Brian May could not have hepatitis C anymore if he had the C to begin with. But we'll never know. We'll never know. If you know what hepatitis Brian May had, please <laughs> tell us. We we I am we very apparently interested. need to know. We are apparently very invested in which hepatitis Brian has. At this point, the rest of Queen had nothing else to do but work on their next album. This worried Brian as he was not able to contribute due to his illness, and he would kind of get a little afraid that they were going to discover that they could go on without him and then he could be replaced. You are indispensable, Brian. You are, but right? I mean, it's only Queen 2. He doesn't know that yet. He doesn't know. He should, though. White side. You're the white side of Queen too. Well, also that that makes me feel like he's a bit um, he's not humble. uppity. No, he's, he's not. He's humble. He's like, a humble man. He's definitely a guy who knows what he fucking likes and is confident and is smart. Mm-hmm. But he's also humble enough to understand like I'm not the be all end all. Right. Which is nice. Uh, it is refreshing. 
While his fears were subdued thanks to frequent visits from his bandmates, Freddie especially, who kept him updated on everything that was going on and didn't give him any reason to think that they weren't expecting anything from him except to get the fuck better and come back into the studio and work with them. Freddie's such a good goddamn friend. He really is. Like, Brian said, you know, all the all the guys were great, everybody visited me, but Freddie would always just come in and make me, you know, laugh and have a good time and... I guess they had to do a stomach surgery on him, and he's like, it's actually Ugh. really sucked to laugh because stomach surgery. Yeah. Yeah. Like, but, I mean, generally, it just was like, Freddie was belly just really laughs. sweet. Yeah. And belly Freddy laughs was, are hurting. He was, he was a good guy to have around. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. For this next album, they recorded in four different studios, working much more individually and, of course, leaving room for Brian to put in his guitars when he came back. In November 1974, they released their third album, Sheer Heart Attack. It was a noticeable departure from their prog rock sound and much more of like a glam hard rock sound. Mm -hmm. And this was the first time we get the full spectrum of Queen. Even John contributed with the song Misfire. With this album, Queen would finally get the international recognition they needed. It reached number two in the UK and it went gold in the US. And some of this has to be attributed to the beloved single Killer Queen. Yes. Which was their first hit single in America. I actually have two original copies of this album. One of them I have, like, for those of you who don't know, I have a very large record collection that was mostly my dad's when he was growing up. He was an avid record collector. Um, But he had one copy that he went out and bought himself. The other copy was a copy that he acquired through his college radio station because he worked at the college at his college radio station when he was younger and in you can tell that it's a promotional copy because it has a corner of the thing cut out oh yeah so i have a bunch of records that have the corner cut out of them and i'm like oh that's for my dad's college like he liked it so much that he went not only did he steal a copy from his college (laughs) radio station he went out and bought it too so he could have a copy that didn't have the corner cut out of it oh well there you go yeah which is funny because I like Sheer Heart Attack, but it's not one of my favorites. It's okay. It's a good transition album. I wouldn't, I don't think I'd put it in my, I don't think I'd put it in my top five. No, I don't think anyone really should. No, I think some people do. I think a lot of people do, though. I think they do just because of what it represents, because mm. it represents Queen coming to America, basically. Yeah. And it was the first album that a lot of Americans were really exposed to Queen with. Yeah. So. I I I can understand the sentimental value right. it has on a lot of people, but as an album taken just as music, I don't think it would should be in anybody's top five Queen albums. Top ten, maybe. Oh, definitely top ten. But I'm not, not I'm top not, five. I mean, I'd even give you like six or seven spot, but like not top five. Yeah, like there's plenty of others that I'm actually super into their '80s stuff. So like, I think two News of the World. See, I think we should take some time throughout these episodes and we'll rank our, we'll rank our, the Queen albums. Yeah. We'll each rank them. Yeah. We'll take, we'll take time for that. Cause that, let me tell you, you need time. There's a lot of, (laughs) there's a lot of them and like, they're all mostly pretty good. There's so many. I don't know if I can make a top five. Not right now anyway. No, no. We'll get there. We'll rank them for you guys. You didn't ask for it, but we're doing it. Too bad. That's what, that's what you're fucking, fucking 
listen to us for. Well, finally, the world tour they wanted took place. Their show was dramatic high energy with costumes designed by Dame Zandra Rose, and Freddie's flamboyant stage presence became known to people everywhere and even led some to question his sexual preference. Which is funny to me because it's like, back in the day, that was pretty common. I mean, I guess he was really big into the leotards and the ballet, so that made people be like, oh, he's a fruit. But like, did you see Roger Taylor? He was definitely pretty, like, flamboyant with his wares. And, like, but even John is... Deacon would wear some shit. And, like, he had, like, some pretty long locks. And I just, like, feel like they all kind of dressed pretty But this pretty. is, like, this is... The 70s. But this is the 70s. This is when glam rock became a thing. And men were dressing like women. Yeah, but well, even... Well, quote, unquote, like women. Right. Like... <sighs> But yeah, it was even back, even in those days, people were like, but ev- hmm, Freddy's sh- a fruit. Yeah, I'm sure everybody who, everybody who saw bands like Queen, even Led Zeppelin, they were probably like, oh, dressing like fruits or whatever. Yeah, which just, just makes me want to eat some fruit. But also, at the same time, people who were growing up in the 60s and 70s, their parents were from the 40s and 50s. Yeah. The generation where... Men dress like men, suit, tie, crisp, clean, white button down shirt, everybody. I mean, men look like men, women look like women, and there was no in between. I'm not gonna lie. I like me a nice, fresh pressed suit on ballet. Or I, a woman. I, I certainly you know do too. I like a person who can dress up real nice. I, I don't give a shit who you are. If you can wear a nice suit really well. Right? Ooh, a nice tailored suit. Yeah, that's great in my book. I don't give a shit who you are. I don't give a shit who you are. Wear that nice tailored <laughs> suit. You you work it. Yeah. But like men were wearing platform heels mm-hmm. and flared pants yep. and frilly tops. I mean, ar- arguably that's even like frillier than what men would dress like now. Yeah. I mean But like bring it back, boys, because y'all fucking wore some what were the men? Even... The men rompers. The grompers? Oh, um The Bropers. Oh, I for- Bropers, grompers, and bropers. I don't know the guy. The guy rompers. Yeah, I can't remember. Because you know what we're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, even Judas Priest was wearing pink satin frilly shirts. And they were rocking it in 1969. I mean, here's the thing, too, though. I guess they weren't wrong. They were not wrong. No, I mean the people calling them gay weren't wrong. True. I just don't like to judge a book by its cover. But also, you shouldn't be judging people just based on what they're wearing. You know what? Who cares if they're gay? That like music's the- fucking bala. Right. But if you have some, you know, asshole 50s housewife and, you know, do-gooder, quote-unquote, do-gooder husband looking at these bands, they're going to completely criticize them. Tisking them. Tisking yeah. them the whole time. Well, they were tisking Queen. And so. they were wrong. Wrong, bitch. And it's and it still kills me because David Bowie was already out and making music, yep. and he was the weirdest fucking space alien anybody had ever seen. So the fact that they were still kind of floored by Queen boggles my mind. Yeah, is, boggles my of, mind. That is kind of weird. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> you're wrong, David Bowie. You're all wrong. Came out guns a fucking blazing and was like, "I'm a space I'm the, alien. I'm the weirdest motherfucker there is." <laughs> bam, 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 bam. And, 
And everyone is still like, oh my God, that Freddie Mercury is wearing a jumpsuit and it's so tight. I can see his junk. Like <laughs> You like it. You know you're you like only it. commenting on it because you like it. Don't don't deny yourself what you want. <laughs> How dare he? Well, while that would become a problem to haunt the band for the rest of their career, which is dumb, <laughs> a more pressing problem had developed. Uh, they were being absolutely screwed by Trident Records. Here is a band that finally reached international fame, selling hit records all around the world. Selling out shows, not just in the UK and the US, but also Canada and Japan, which BT dubs Japan fucking loves Queen. Because Japan knows what the fuck is up. Sometimes. Maybe not so much when they did like a lot of fucked... You know, we don't need to get into history. They do some really fucked up shit. But when it comes to music... They know what's up. They know what's up. Love me some J-pop. Anyway. But I would like you to explain to me... How their weekly wages were only 60 pounds a week, not even enough to afford rent. Roger was told he had to drum more quietly as they could not afford new sticks for him. John was refused in advance so he could put a deposit on his house. But then here comes the head of the company in a brand new Rolls Royce. The final straw was when Queen's lawyer, Jim Beach, was told that they owed Trident 120,000 pounds. I'm sorry, they owe Trident? Yep. They, they couldn't pay rent. They actually, like, for a while had to, like, kind of all live together. Not, like, all of them, but, like, they would kind of, like, all clump up and live yeah. together. Because they still couldn't... Here they are, like, making sheer heart attack. Still can't afford fucking rent. And this is, like, the 70s. Rent's not that expensive. I feel like this is a story we've heard before, like, a million fucking times. Yeah, remember how we said that this is normal? Yeah, this yeah. is unfortunately normal. Yeah. So with Jim's help, Queen managed to extricate themselves from this ridiculous contract. Trident was removed from any previous duties with the band, but would still receive a lump sum of £100,000 and 1% royalty from the next six albums. Ugh. Which is bullshit, but at this point, they're like, we gotta get the fuck out of here. It's ridiculous the kind of shit that bands would have to agree to just to get out of their bullshit contracts. There are so many, I mean, think about how many artists just like, I'm just gonna put out shit albums for the next five years yeah. so I can get out of my fucking contract. And it's kind of hilarious that people are like, well, why are record companies, you know, going belly up all of a sudden? It's because we don't need them anymore. And SoundCloud rappers. And SoundCloud no, rappers. No, I don't know if SoundCloud rappers have anything to do <laughs> but with like, it. But, like, I mean, SoundCloud rappers are kind of exemplary of this. Like, they are putting out all of... It, it might be shit music, but they're pu putting out all of their music themselves, reaching a huge audience because we have the internet. Right. When we didn't have the internet, we needed record companies to distribute music and tell us what we were supposed to like. What do you like? I guess I like this. I guess I like Queen. I don't All know. Right. We don't need it anymore. So, of course, they're going to go belly up. Of course, MySpace is going to, at one point, become the biggest um, means of getting your music to a large audience. Well, look at something like Spotify, too. I mean, yeah, yeah. SoundCloud, SoundCloud has more than the rappers, too. Like, they actually have a lot of good music. I've heard a lot of good DJs on SoundCloud. And also, but look at Spotify. You can upload your own shit. You don't need a record company to upload yeah. to Spotify. And you might fucking make it on Spotify. Yeah. Because I mean, that's how we're consuming our music now. Yeah. Granted, there is a huge chance factor in if you're going to really blow up or mm -hmm. not by doing that. But 
still anybody can post their stuff online. Yeah, and anybody and can reach listen a to relatively it. wide audience, and anybody can listen to it for free. So at this point, it's like, oh, record companies, you better stop fucking yeah, up. Yeah, you like you could be kind of useless very, very soon because the whole DIY mu- movement when it comes to music is blowing up. You know, honestly, taking a brief hiatus from this conversation, but a lot of Material that media that I consume is DIY. Yeah. I even like, I watch a few YouTube, uh, I watch a few YouTubers. I listen to a lot of podcasts. I, and like a lot of the podcasts I listen to are not even necessarily on a network. A lot of them are DIY or indie or whatever. You know, you get a lot of stuff from Etsy. We are definitely trying to reach a point where we don't need this fucking corporate bullshit middleman. Yeah. I can fucking give you my shit. I mean, we're doing it ourselves. We fucking do our own marketing. We do our own social media. We make our own shit. We produce our own shit. Right. Anyway. They were picked up by EMI Records, who helped them pay Trident the money they apparently owed them. But finding the proper manager was a task taken very seriously by the band, as at this point they were feeling pretty raw about trusting someone with their business again. Understandable. Yep. Ultimately, they went with John Reed, who was working with someone else who was not only a really big deal in the music biz, but also a Queen fan, Sir Elton John. Aww. Yep. So they got John Reed working with them, and he's already got Elton John, so you can at least trust they're gonna, he's going to do a good enough job to get him yeah. up there. Right. And it's great. The overall bitterness about the situation with Trident, and specifically Norman Sheffield, inspired Freddie to write a real banger of a call-out called Death on Two Legs, parentheses, dedicated to. Aww. And Norman Sheffield was very pissed about this and, like, tried to sue the band for defamation. And he wrote, like, his own song called, like, Life on Two Legs and the real story and that they were trying to screw them over. Like, Queen is trying to screw over the Sheffields and per 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 whatever. I don't believe you. It's pretty visceral in the lyrics of the song. And it actually had taken the rest of the band aback when they heard it the first time. They're like, oh, oh my, oh my, Freddie. Wow. Really... Balls out thanking you, aren't you? <laughs> You're really balls out thanking you for that. Right there. Wow. But like all Queen songs and something, you know, you should know about Queen is the writer ultimately gets his way. The tracks are written and they get credit to whoever writes the song and they always get the final say in how the song goes. Mm-hmm. And Freddie was passionate about the song. He said, nope, it's exactly what I want. And they're like, all right. And like the rest of the band raise their hands up and say, all right. They use this as the opening track to their next album, A Night at the Opera, which was an album that would change everything. But that story will have to wait for next week. That's a good place to start. And it's a good place to stop and start later. Yep. Yeah. So that's just part one of Queen. There's a couple more of these guys. It's a big story. It's a big story. There, There is a lot to this. I mean, I've barely gotten through their beginning years yeah. in well, an hour and a half. And there's four members. You don't want to do any of them a disservice yeah. by like focusing on one and not the other ones. Again, I am very passionate about presenting Queen as a band, not just as one single yes. member. This is an encyclopedic... That's not a word, but whatever. I'm going to say it's a word. Overview of the band as a whole. And I even, like, going through this, I'm like, I'm leaving shit out, but I can't put everything in. Yeah. <sighs> I just hope this is working. Is this working? It's working. Yay. It's working. All right. Well, thank you guys for listening. 
We're back. Back in 2019. It's good to be back. I missed it. I hope Return you missed us. Return of the Mac. Once again. Return of the Mac. Oh my god. Return of the Mac. You're yes, going to get a smack. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Return of the Mac. Return of the Rock Candy? I don't know. Whatever. But, uh... You know the deal, kids. You want to follow us up on them social meds. You can hit us up on Twitter at RockCandyPod, Instagram and Facebook at RockCandyPodcast. Visit our website, www.rockcandypodcast.com. Leave your comments, toss us an email, whatever. Shout out to us. We like you. Send we us hope some you like cold us. medicine. That Send would us be some nice. cold medicine. <laughs> Send us some pictures. Send us some beer. Send because us some beer. Because if you send us beer, we will drink it. Oh my god, we will drink and shout beer. you out like nobody's business. Oh my god, yeah. You know what? Send us a beer. Send us some fucking beer. <laughs> Twenty nineteen challenge. Send us beer. Yeah, especially. You know if, what? We will. We will give a prize to someone who gives us beer. Especially if you have a beer that's like named after a song or an artist or something. Oh, then we'll do an episode. Send it to us. You know what? You send us a beer. We'll do an episode we'll do a on fucking it. Episode on it. Wow. All right. 2019 How's that for challenge. marketing? 2019 <laughs> challenge. You send us a beer. We'll fucking do an episode on it. Absolutely. No matter what it is, even if it's something like, oh, I don't want to talk about them, but I guess we're we, gonna have oh, to. Oh, but we will talk about it. We will wanna, and we'll be enthusiastic. We'll do a goddamn good job. We will do a goddamn good job. <laughs> nice, excellent. Well, I'm really excited. Hope you kids tune in next week for more rad stories about the best band ever, Queen. And we'll have to see you then. With that, party on, Ashley. Party on, Maggie. Party on, you crazy kids out there. Balls out. Thank you. Balls out. Thank you.